0: This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled, What's Inside My Head? Recorded February 21st, 1999 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon.
1: This morning, as I said, I'm going to answer a question from the question box. Uh, Mike mentioned earlier that uh, it would be a good idea if if you have a question, to go in the question box to put your name on it. If you don't want me to mention your name, you can just say, please keep me anonymous or something. This one doesn't have a name on it, uh, but it's fine. The question is clear. I hope whoever wrote this question happens to be here this Sunday. That's the other thing, <laughs> by the way. If you put your name on it and uh, I look around and you're not there, I'll sometimes delay that talk until I uh, see you, you know, here, especially if you're someone who comes fairly regularly. So, if not, uh, whoever the person is can listen to the tape if the tape's worth keeping. I don't keep all these tapes. So, let's just plunge in. Here's the question. What is it like inside your head since your awakening?
0: Is it mostly
1: still, or are you filled with endless inner chatter like most of us? (laughs) Do you go through anger, frustration, depression, elation, etc., but you can watch all this, or are, there, or are these normal emotions gone? Now, first of all, let me say in one sense, this is the kind of talk I love, because I don't have to do any preparation or research for it. <laughs> Uh, On the other hand, it's really the most difficult kind of talk to give, because it's not something I think about. And in fact, as I try to answer it, maybe you will see uh, why it's difficult uh, to try to to answer this. (coughs) Uh, I was picking out books this morning to recommend to you that related to the subject of the talk, and I mentioned some earlier, but I noticed that I don't know of any book written by a Gnostic about their life after they awakened. Uh, These books I mentioned all tell you the story of the journey to awakening, and then maybe there's a little bit at the end about something about what it's like, trying to communicate that. I think Krishnamurti wrote some journals after his awakening. I've never read them, so I really don't know what's contained in them. But other than that, I really just can't think of anybody who wrote extensively about their life after awakening. And there's a quite a good reason for this. In one sense, there is no life after awakening. There's no one to write about. And this is the perhaps most essential and most difficult thing to communicate. And we'll see in how the question is phrased and how I'm going to have to try to answer the question, we'll constantly be ignoring that because of the demands of language. But the most essential thing about awakening is to realize that there is no one home, no one there. So to talk about what is your life like is a question that cannot be answered in that sense. There's no one there to have a life in that ultimate sense of a being, person, ego, entity or whatever. Now, that doesn't mean I can't use the word I perfectly normally, and that doesn't mean I don't understand what you mean when you use the word I. This is a convention of our language. It's very convenient. That's what a convention means. We use it for convenience. Uh, It's very appropriate for our communication uh, at at a relative level, and there's no problem with it whatsoever as long as we know that is what we are doing. It's like... It, we talk about, or I, for instance, watch the nightly news, the local news. I love to watch the weather. I got in this habit when I was in Lone Pine because weather is very important. And now it's sort of a fun game. Can the weatherman predict the weather here? I mean, this is a real, <laughs> uh, a real task in this part of the world. But at the one uh, place during the weather report, they have a little card and they give you sunrise and sunset, the times for the sunrise and sunset. Now, I know what that means; you know what that means, but you also know that at least according to our worldview, the sun does not rise, and the sun does not set, according to our worldview. What happens is because the Earth is turning, and in relation to the to the earth, the sun is stationary, the earth is turning, and so the horizon dips in the morning, and the sun emerges it doesn't go anywhere it just because we are turning then It seems that the sun is rising. And the reverse happens in the evening. So when you're looking out over the ocean at a beautiful sunset, what's really happening? You're falling back, really. And the horizon is rising and masking the sun. That's a long, awkward way to describe that. It's much easier to say, hey, you want to see the sunset tonight? It's going to be about 8 o'clock. Come over to my house. You know, we'll have some margaritas and sit on the porch and watch the sunset. (laughs) Or, I don't know, if you don't drink margaritas, we'll have some carrot juice, whatever is your <laughs> taste. So, talking about I is, is like talking about sunrise and sunset. It's very convenient, it's a shorthand, but it has no ultimate uh, referent. There's nothing really there that it refers to. So, as I go through this, I'm going to point some things out about the question that reflect an assumption. That gnosis shows to be untrue. This is no reflection. If you are the writer of this question on your intelligence or anything, I understand perfectly well what you mean by the question. And this is the way everybody talks. So I'm not singling you out. Uh, I'm just trying to uh, get at something deeper than our language can communicate. So with that little preface, let's try to begin and see what happens. What's it like inside your head since your awakening? Well, right away, there's this, uh, what is it, a possessive, uh, what's your, what, what part of grammar is that? Somebody here must be a, <laughs> a possessive pronoun, right, thank you. Right away, there's this possessive pronoun, your head. Well, the bottom line is I don't have a head, not because there isn't something here to pound but because there's no I in there to have a head, to own a head. Now, this is the only reason this is important is because our language and our thought patterns trick us into believing that there are entities there that when there are no entities there. So it's really important to pay attention to your thoughts and your language and check out and see if there's any entity there that's being referred to. This is something everybody can go investigate for yourself. You don't have to rely on my word for it. In fact, that is a major uh, practice on a spiritual path. It's called self-inquiry, and it's precisely that to go check out and see if there are actual references to certain words and thoughts that we have. So I don't have a head. Now, uh, it's also, this is a, a, what what do you call it, a colloquialism? Is that an idiom? What's what's going on inside your head? But again, this is something that's quite interesting that reflects uh, something about our culture. Uh, I don't know most of the time what's going on inside my head. The only times I'm really aware of something going on inside inside my head is when I have a cold, and then I can feel pressure stuffed up here, Uh, or uh, when I've had too many margaritas and wake up in the morning and uh, there's a pounding going on. Or sometimes during certain meditation practices, there are, uh, uh, specific sensations inside my head, but normally speaking, I, I have no idea what's going on inside my head. Now, we uh, assume that thoughts go on inside our heads, or maybe emotions go on inside our heads and so forth. But if you go investigate this, uh, it's very curious why we assume this. I, I, I I used to think this too, by the way. I mean, I used to think that something up here, I lived up here somehow. But if you really go, look, where are thoughts? Thoughts do not exist in physical space anywhere, inside your head or outside your head. We assume, particularly in this culture, because of our uh, materialist worldview, whether you hold one or not, you still, that was the basis of your education, we assume everything that is has to be in some sort of physical space. But thoughts aren't in any sort of physical space. So again, I'm I'm just pointing this out to uh, show the value of really examining the way we think about these things, because maybe we're thinking about them all wrong. Did you want to ask a question about this?
0: Well, I mean, I was just thinking about, you know, you're talking and you're expressing things and you have opinions and you have a life and you, you know, I mean, it's like there has to be thoughts in order to function.
1: Yes. You now know? notice it doesn't mean
0: you're attached to them or
1: that
2: you know I, not, I just,
1: Okay, that's very good. Notice what you just said.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You have to be thinking. You have you have opinions. You have a life. Now I never said thoughts weren't going on. I never said opinions weren't arising. I never said a life if you want in terms of a biological life isn't being lived, but there's no you doing it or owning it. So it's, it's not...
2: about ownership. Hmm? It's about ownership.
1: Well, it's about, is there anyone to own? Is there anyone who owns any of this? Do you see what I mean? We talk about uh, our heads, our hands, our bodies, but who is it that owns your head, your hands, and your body? And again, something to go look for. I mean, go look for in your own experience. See if you can actually find anyone or anything or any being or whatever there that owns all this or any of this, let's put it that way. So what's it like inside your head since your awakening? Well, there's no I to have a head and very little goes on inside this head and it's mostly rather dull. (laughs) It's it's pressures and things like that. But I know what the questioner means by the question so it's not that I'm going to avoid the question uh, based on these hair-splitting
0: technicalities. (laughs) (coughs) What
1: the questioner means is what happens to thoughts, emotions, and things like that? Are they the same or are they different? So the question goes on. Is it mostly still or are you filled with endless inner chatter like most of us? Well, certainly true that there's much more stillness as opposed to chatter. It's easy for that chatter to subside because that stillness is always there. It's It's not really a dichotomy. Is there chatter or stillness? The stillness, the silence, is always there, and that's something that is discovered in awakening. And by the way, it's something that can be discovered before awakening. It's one of the reasons we practice meditation. You can begin to tap into that before a full awakening. And you realize there's stillness and silence is sort of the ground state. And the chatter and the thoughts arise out of that and dissipate back into that. And once you realize that, you don't have to work to become calm and still and quiet. All you have to do is stop churning those thoughts. Now, consciousness manifests these thoughts. I don't manifest these thoughts. There's no I in there that does it. And it's perfectly natural for thoughts to manifest. And I have never heard of any uh, awakened being, quote unquote, who didn't think. And the reason is, is because if they didn't, they would be in a mental hospital on the catatonic ward. You wouldn't know about them. You wouldn't know they were awakened. Because they would have no teachings, because you have to think to have teachings. Ramana Maharshi, a great mystic of this century, a Hindu mystic, uh, spent a number of years after his awakening in, in this kind of state, just lost in bliss. It wasn't that he was actually catatonic, because people thought he was, but later he, was said, he talked about what was going on around him. He was perfectly aware of everything going on around him. I don't know how many thoughts were arising. He certainly didn't give any teachings. Slowly, people started asking questions, and they forced them to come out and give teachings. Poor guy. But... <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Destiny. Uh, but this business of a dichotomy between thought and stillness is really false. Now, what is the quality then of thought in awakening? Well, it's, it's really not very different from, uh, from being deluded. Thoughts sometimes can be profound. Uh, sometimes they can be silly. The other night, I had a very strange experience. I get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, usually around four o'clock. And then occasionally what happens, I come back and then we have five cats in this house and they start jumping on the bed and they start fighting. And then one has to go out to get up and let that cat out. And then maybe another one's been outside and has to come in. Of course, they spread this out. So it happens just as you're falling back to sleep. You know, so Mm -hmm. time goes on. And so from four or five o'clock, six o'clock, you know, well... I was in one of those states, I wasn't dreaming, but I was lying, just lying there in bed in that kind of twilight zone. And a lecture started about third world economies. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it was totally disembodied, just a voice. It seemed to be some professor of economics giving this to Western businessmen. And I really don't have that much interest in the details of third world economics. And not that it is an important subject, it is. But it's not, you know, my uh, cup of tea, per se. And also, as this going on, I began to think, well, it's kind of interesting, but this is really totally from a Western point of view. I mean, the lecture is talking about the problems endemic in third world economies. And I began to realize, well, these are only problems if you're a Western uh, businessman trying to break into those economies. They, they may not be problems <laughs> for the third world countries at all. So, and I couldn't shut it up. I mean, I didn't actually try to, but it's just going on. <laughs> inexplicably now that was i mentioned that cuz it's kind of a strange strong uh, dramatic case the difference is though between awakened thinking if we want to put it that way and deluded thinking that there is no belief a that i am thinking it and and more importantly there is a very clear awareness that it is just thought. There's no confusion between thought and other forms of experience. So, for instance, to go back to the beginning here, there's no confusion about using the word I and is there or is there not some I there. There's no confusion about an argument, for instance, A philosophical argument about what's real or not because it's all thought and as thought it is really thought but it has no more reality than thought. It can never, uh, it can never transcend its nature as being thought. Is everybody following this a little bit? For instance, thoughts may arise about what's happening to uh, someone Jennifer and I know. And we may discuss it. Oh, what's this person going through, and and so forth and so on. Now, what happens in delusion is you begin to believe that that's actually happening, and you begin to respond as though it were actually happening, and then uh, very often you're very surprised to find out it. It was not the case at all, or if it, if it is actually, if the thoughts are in a certain sense mirroring what is going on, the reality will always be somewhat different from the thought. I use reality, and I should use reality in quotes here, the, the actuality, I should say. We're not talking about ultimate reality here. But the thoughts always simply remain thoughts. Now you can investigate in your own experience how much suffering believing in thoughts causes <laughs> unnecessary suffering, just to begin with, and that is, for instance, anticipating something. Anticipating that some experience is going to be a terrible experience. And you go through all sorts of suffering. Let's say you have a, <laughs> uh, an appointment. Oh, well, I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, One of the most exciting things that happened to me, this this is another reason mystics don't write about their life, nothing really exciting happens.
2: One of the most exciting
1: things that happened to me since my awakening, aside uh, the most exciting thing was my marriage. But uh, I have to say this. (laughs) 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 Second to that was probably this gallbladder operation I had a number of years ago, which some of you have heard a lot about because I like to use this as as an example. Now, I know for myself that under delusion, when the doctor said, you have to go have this operation uh, and we're sending you to the hospital now and we're, we're scheduling the operation for the day after tomorrow, I had a little bit of infection. They wanted to bring the infection, the fever down and clear up the infection a little bit. Uh, I would have been uh, frightened, anxious, worried. It would have been something I would not have looked forward to at all. And the reason is my mind would have uh, created all these images of the, how terrible it's going to be. My mind, the thinking mind, would have told me this is going to be a terrible experience. And sure enough, it probably would have been. I never had a gallbladder out before. You can only do it once anyway. Uh, but i never had an operation before, by the way, in my life. In this case, the mind still kicks up. You know, little thoughts like that. But I was looking forward to it. I thought, this is wonderful. I've never had an operation. Now i am got to find out what it's like. And it was, by the way. It was really, like I say, one of the most exciting things happened. I've seen a lot of movies and uh, TV stories. And they, you know, they rush the person into the operating room on the gurney. And sometimes they put the cam- uh, camera on the gurney. And they show you the lights going by and people's faces. All that I've seen in the movies and now what's happening to me i said, wow
2: yes, this is great
1: i got into the operating room and there was the surgeon who uh i i don't even know if i'd ever met the surgeon you know he's got a mask on but there's my um general practitioner he's there in the room too i didn't expect him and i said oh uh, dr copperman hi how you doing and the room looks like the um the the command deck of a Star Trek, of what's that, the Enterprise, you know, I mean, it's really fascinating, it's this this like dark cave with all these lights and dials and machines and stuff, and I start asking about all the, you know, what's going on and this and that. I mean, it was really fascinating, and they knocked me out, and I hadn't finished my conversation. (laughs) So, I I, it's an amusing story it's fun and uh, but I, I tell you this just to give you an example that's one thing that oh this is different you see this is different than what it would have been before it's not like what it would have been before it's not that thoughts don't arise it's that I don't necessarily believe what they're telling me they remain just thoughts other than that, as I said, all kinds of thoughts can arise. They can be very concentrated thoughts. They can be, in a certain sense, directed thoughts. They're not directed by me. They're directed by the circumstances. So the circumstance is I have to give a teaching on, uh, as I did last week, on a Sufi saying. So I go back and I look through my files and I find nice quotes and I organize a little teaching. Again, you see, I keep using the word I, but there's no I in there doing this. It's a response to circumstances. It's just an arising. Sometimes doubt arises in thought about what's what. Don't know what to think. Forgive me, Jennifer, but this sometimes happens, you know, in a relationship. (laughs) And if you're a man with a woman, women can be very
2: mysterious.
1: (laughs) I I hope I don't sound like a male chauvinist here, but it's just true. It's just a fact. I think it's been a fact for thousands of years, and I don't think any amount of women's liberation is going to change that. This isn't any put-down of women. If anything, it's a put-down of men. There comes a point of where you just don't know. And women always think that you're ridiculous. I mean, what's the matter with you? They do know, apparently. (laughs) And they keep trying to change us, and it doesn't work. (laughs) We have to learn to live with them, and they have to learn to live with us. But this kind of confusion, in a certain sense, can arise. The whole range of thought, at least that I experienced under delusion, I experience in awakening, but knowing what it is, knowing that it is just thought. And that's the major, major difference. Mm-hmm. Then the question goes on. Uh, Do you go through anger, frustration, depression, elation, elation, etc., but you can, and she puts this or he puts this in quotes, watch all this, or are these normal emotions gone? So the first part of the question really has to do with thought, the nature of thought and what thought's like, and the second part has to do with emotions. So these are the two main things that actually cause the suffering in life, and this very, uh, the question goes right to the main points here. This one's even harder to answer, and the reason it's harder to answer is because all our terms for emotions are already loaded with a negative or positive judgment. So we do not have the language to speak about anger except in some judgmental way. And then there are debates. Is anger a good thing or a bad thing? And so certain uh, uh, spiritual teachers will tell you, anger is a bad thing, get rid of anger. Certain psychologists and therapists will say, no, anger is a good thing, you have to express your anger. And particularly in this uh, culture, in this day and age, there's a a lot of confusion about emotions, anger and so forth. And when we actually experience them, we usually experience them as either pleasant or unpleasant. And so it's very hard to talk about these emotions without without that judgment being built into the very uh, word. And one of the things about awakening is because you see through thought and language is to be able to experience emotions and everything else, by the way, without thought telling you what's what. Experiencing nakedly, directly, immediately, without the mediation of concepts, ideas, conditioning, uh, all that. So, the best way that I've developed uh, to speak about emotions is to start off talking about energy and making a comparison between emotions, which are a kind of energy. The word emotion comes from the root to move, it's a movement, emote. And we can make a comparison to physical energies, the, the standard energies known in physics. In fact, we have a, well, a scientist here. This is Jim. He's a, a chemistry teacher, professor, what?
2: I'm a teacher.
1: Yeah. Teacher. Now, I'm going to ask you to name me some kinds of energies. We're just talking about physical energies that you would talk about with your class, for instance. Um,
2: chemical en- energy and potential energy. Mm-hmm. Electrical energy. Um, magnetic, electromagnetic energy. Uh-huh. Nuclear energy. Uh-huh. Um, strong forces, weak forces gravitational energy. Uh-huh. Um, Where does heat fit in? Heat is, yeah, heat I can just take um, temperature of vibration molecules, vibration movement, Okay. actually. Heat okay. is movement. All
1: right. You see, you've Become more sophisticated when I was going to high school. We had radiant energy, and, uh, as I remember from my high school class, radiation.
2: Light energy. Okay, light energy. Okay.
1: Anyway, so now you've named about half a dozen or more different kinds of energy, right? Now, would you tell me which ones are good and which ones are bad?
2: <laughs> They're all great. <laughs> <laughs> They're all great.
1: <laughs> so, uh, emotions are energies. And they don't have to be good or bad. We can make judgments about them, by the way. You know, being a a Gnostic doesn't mean you have to suspend your judgment and become a dodo. But we judge not the energy, we judge to what use it's put. Just like we would judge uh, electrical energy. If we use it to light our houses, we think that's good. If we use it to torture people, we say that's bad. It's nothing to do with the electricity, it's nothing inherent in the electricity that's good or bad. And the judgment good or bad is always relative to some context. That's why it's called a relative judgment. It's not an absolute judgment. Within some context, then it's good. And within another context, it's bad. And sometimes we switch. Sometimes we think it's great. We have all this electricity and we can light our houses and we can light our streets and we can do all this stuff and we begin to realize oh, wait a minute, it takes a lot of fuel to generate that electricity, and we're burning all this coal, and we're polluting the air, and suddenly it doesn't seem so good anymore. And that's another reason it's relative. These judgments change over time in different contexts. So then, what would it be like to simply experience motion as just pure energy? Well, it's... Uh, you could think of it as different kinds of energy, but they're all really the same energy. Is this true in physics, too, fundamentally? It all comes down to different manifestations of the same. Yes, right. right. In fact, all our range of emotions are manifestations of the same energy, the same movement. Sometimes it moves very quickly and sharply. Sometimes it sort of spreads out and uh, moves slowly. Sometimes it moves uh, in in great waves. Sometimes it just moves in little ripples. It's all the same thing going on. As just pure energy, it's all enjoyable. If you didn't have this energy, there would be no biological life whatsoever. (laughs) And I, I stress this because some people really think enlightenment is about not experiencing any emotions and their idea of being enlightened is uh this very stoic idea is to become like stone (laughs) and you will be able to sit up there and all sorts of awful things can go around around you and they won't bother you because you won't experience any emotion it's totally false this is the ideal of the ego the ego would like to be invulnerable the ego would like to have a life enclosed in one of those uh, force fields, you know, from Star <laughs> Trek. You know, where you can uh enter a battlefield and no, no arrows, nothing can reach you. That's really the ego's idea to be invulnerable. The ego would like to be God and and I'm talking about the old Jehovah kind of God. The ego would like all that power, the ego would like to be invulnerable and everything else. In fact, many people's God is just a projection of what their ego ideal would be. But but you know, that is not life. That is not fun to be a stone. I don't think so anyway. It's not a, uh, an ideal to try to emulate, and it's very dangerous in your spiritual practice if you go around trying to repress and suppress your emotions. You end up being in worse trouble then you were just being an ordinary deluded being. You'll end up being a neurotic deluded being. Well, most of us are anyway, which will just be more neurotic. It's very important to be able to check behavior that arises out of conditioned emotions that we already judge to be bad or whatever, because we don't know what we're we don't know what's going on. And for instance, anger usually expresses itself in a way that's harmful to others. And so harmful to ourselves, by the way. And so until we learn about emotions, it's very important to be able to check the behavior, that conditioned behavior that comes out of anger, that aggressive, harmful behavior. That's very different than getting rid of the emotion. And in fact, being able to check that emotion is what allows you to start looking at it. Because one of the things about emotions is very interesting under delusion. We don't like them. Almost all of them we really don't like. The reason we strike out at somebody when we're angry is to get rid of that feeling. We don't like it. So we can dissipate the energy, we think. So we lash out. This is, shows you don't really like that experience. Interesting, the same thing with desire. Desire arises, and right away we want to satisfy it whether it's for an ice cream cone or for sex or for whatever. We rush out to the store to get an ice cream, to eat the ice cream to make the desire go away. We don't enjoy the desire. So if you you check these habitual condition responses, it gives you an opportunity to be with that emotion, that energy, long enough to really see what's going on. So in all spiritual traditions... There are recommendations to check the external behavior. But it's not about eliminating the emotion at all. Not at all. So this is a very important point uh, to to remember. It's also, in a more secondary way, it's also very important to get rid of this idea that enlightenment uh, is a state in which no emotions arise because that means every single uh, teacher that you ever meet is going to disappoint you. There is no such thing as a teacher that does not uh, seem to be experiencing emotions. I mean, they are experiencing emotions. They, they aren't there to experience them, but emotions are experienced, let's put it that way. Some teachers are more placid than others, but uh, again, it's just a difference in patterning of emotion. And in that sense, teachers awaken people are have individual patternings. They're not clones of each other. And that's a good thing, too, because if they're all only clones of each other, then only those people who related to that particular style of teaching would benefit. No one else would. So we have many different kinds of teachers expressing many different ways <laughs> out of compassion, because there are many different kinds of people with many different twists on the basic delusion. The basic delusion is the same. But boy, people are very creative about how to <laughs> weave it into things. So this is very important. Now, specifically the questioner says, can you watch all this going on? The, the two things, do these things arise and you just watch them or are they gone? I've actually answered the first part Uh, First, they are not gone, these normal emotions. Now, there are some emotions which I call echo emotions or somebody once uh, uh, came up with a better word, self-referential emotions, that do not arise anymore. Loneliness is one. You can only have loneliness in, in reference to some entity, some being, some individual. So, uh, if you are, in a sense, everything, because you are nothing, there's, there's no one or, or way to be lonely. In fact, one of the things about my awakening was to, and I had been lonely often in my life, was to realize, oh my God, how can you ever have been lonely? Look at all this. This great display of love all around you all the time It's like a big love affair, this cosmos. How could you ever have been lonely? How deluded you were. you see. So loneliness is one of those things that just disappears. It's impossible to be lonely. Sometimes there is an impulse to be alone. You want to just withdraw, retreat someplace and have things, the outer circumstances, become quiet and let the mind quiet down and, and, and whatnot. This is a normal pattern of human behavior in our particular culture. When this arises in a lot of people, they interpret it as depression. Oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. What's the matter? I don't feel like being with people. I don't feel like doing anything. Something's wrong with me. And, I, and they get on the phone with their shrink, you know, and come in and have the, uh, a session and get some, uh, what do you give for depression these days?
0: Prozac. Prozac. Prozac.
1: <laughs> now, I'm not saying this is the only cause of depression. I do personally think there is a biological basis of, for depression, and I'm not against anybody taking Prozac. But I think that a lot of our normal depression comes up from a misinterpretation of a wisdom built into this body-mind being that says, hey, it's time to withdraw. It's time to pull back. You watch the whole rest of creation and it all goes through this cycle of withdrawal and return. From the seasons to the rotation of the day and night, the animals, the hibernation, our own sleep, waking. It's a perfectly normal thing to happen. But again, if your mind interprets what's going on as something negative, then it does become negative. And then it becomes pathological. The more you're fighting it, the more the wisdom of the body-mind is saying, hey, let me go for a while here. And the more you're saying, oh, you got to be on the job. And suddenly you're in a big conflict and you, you know, you have tremendous suffering. I used to go through what I called black moods, which were basically depression, about twice a year, I think. And for about three or four weeks, it was almost a cyclic kind of thing. I would fall into these, well, that's what I call them for myself—black moods. I didn't—I didn't really diagnose it personally as clinic clinical depression, but certainly today you would say it's depression. This went on all my life. It, it got more severe after my teenage years, and then some. Uh, in some situations, if I had more stressful kind of job or work, it would become more noticeable. And I always thought there was something a problem with this, and then I never. Uh, you know, went to shrinks about it, or took any medicine, but it was something I had to live through. I knew that it was going to end in a few weeks, and so I just sort of make the best of it and live through it. After waking, I realized, oh, this is perfectly normal. This is what the this is just the rhythm of this particular body mind's life. <laughs> Guilt is another self-referential emotion that vanishes. Guilt needs an I in there to have been bad done something wrong. Now, I, again, obeying the conventions of our language and so forth, first of all, I can feel sorry that something that arose out of this body-mind uh, hurt somebody else. And so, uh, you know, there's a feeling of, oh, that's too bad. And I would say, I didn't mean to do that. I is still just conventional. What I'm saying is that I recognize sufferings going on here. And I recognize that it's, it's coming out of this relationship and I'm perfectly uh, capable of turning around to Jennifer or anybody else and saying, oh, gee, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. That's very different from guilt. There's no blame in that. There's just trying to reestablish communication. There's acknowledgement of experience And there may be a a noting and saying, oh, well, this person is sensitive to that, even though maybe I didn't mean to hurt their feelings. So let's try to remember not to do that again. It doesn't always work, believe me.
2: But there's, you know,
1: that's part of that remorsefulness and saying you're sorry. That's different from guilt. Guilt is saying, gee, I guess I must be just such a terrible person. I can't do anything right. Or I did something that I can never uh, make up for. So bad, so terrible that there's nothing I could do to make up for. If you have feelings like that, look into them. That is pure ego. That you, I, am so important. I can do something that the whole cosmos could never forgive me for. Uh, Catherine of Siena, yes, Catherine of Siena, great Christian mystic, said there's only one uh, sin that cannot be forgiven, and that's despair. And as long as you're in despair, uh, God can't reach you. Because, she said, despair is your believing that your darkness is greater than God's mercy. How arrogant that is if we want to talk in those theological sorts of terms. You see what I mean? So uh, if you find your mind telling you things like you are totally worthless or you've done something that can never be forgiven, don't just buy into what your mind is telling you. Just look at those thoughts. Those are just thoughts. They are not true. So now we see a little bit how thoughts and emotions work together, and though we're talking about them separately here, actually our thinking is what uh, causes, our thinking about emotions is what causes problems with emotions, and then they generate more thoughts, and we get in this uh, cycle that goes round and round. That's what awakening breaks out of. So emotions still occur, thoughts still occur, but that uh, that habitual conditioned pattern that sets up something that looks like it's real never takes on that reality again. Thoughts and emotions can still chase each other and all that. But it never it never starts to jump off the screen. It's like going to a movie and having Tremendous emotions generated by the movie and excitement and even thoughts about the movie and all that. And the movie, if it's done well, and that's the art of making movies, I used to be in the film business, is to make them as realistic as possible in the sense that you believe them, you're sucked in, but that movie can never jump off the screen and be reality. And that's what our delusions all about. We get sucked into that movie and suddenly we think, oh my God, this is really happening. And so enlightenment, awakening, is realizing that it is a movie, a wonderful movie, but it never becomes more than the movie. The first part of the question, do you just watch all this? Well, again, that goes back to the very first thing I said. There's no I in here to watch (laughs) all this. During the course of a spiritual path, there are practices where we try to develop a witness We try to develop introspection. We sort of like taking a piece of awareness out and instead of being totally sucked up in the movie, to sort of stand back. You know, say, go up to the balcony. You know, you get a little more distance on it. Or uh, go way back in the balcony. Well, when your screen is about this big, it's easier to start to realize that it's just a movie than if you're sitting in the front row, you know. So become a witness. Go back to the balcony. And that's a very, very important technique on a spiritual path. But again... The ultimate goal is not to become like a disembodied witness of everything. There is no one witnessing anything. All there is, is consciousness, awareness, this is just an obvious fact of our lives, and appearances, which is another just totally obvious fact of our lives. And... One other thing that isn't necessarily so totally obvious, but is really not all that mysterious, the the appearances are appearances of that awareness. They are forms of that consciousness. They are absolutely, totally inseparable from that consciousness, that awareness. And that is all that's going on. Right now, yesterday, today, tomorrow, that is all that is ever, ever going on. Nothing more is going on. So, to to wrap this up, we can say, really, awakening isn't about attaining anything, getting someplace else, acquiring any sort of new knowledge, new this, or anything. It's much more about things dropping out of experience. Things that were not there in the first place. (laughs) So, for instance, uh, one of the things that drops out is any conviction that any intellectual knowledge is real. This means that you live the rest of your life in total ignorance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, Thoughts arise. Knowledge arises and all that, as I said before. But you don't know anything, not only because you aren't there, but because all this knowledge can never be more than relative thoughts. You don't know what's going on. You have no idea what's going on whatsoever again. You don't know who you are, and you don't know what all this is. And it doesn't bother you. <laughs>
0: right?
1: Uh, you know, I don't know if this is a, a valuable thing to say or not. I mean, I hope that when I, I talk, this is going to be some value to you because no point just talking about my experience. I'm trying to dissuade you of certain beliefs so that, you know, you don't spend a lot of time trying to repress your emotions or get to a permanent thoughtless state or something. But, uh, but truly speaking, uh, you know, I, I never wanted to be ignorant. If somebody told me, oh, i got a way that <laughs> you can become totally ignorant forever, I would say, so not for me. Yes.
0: Are you saying that the answer to the question, who am I, is an accepted, I don't know?
1: Yes, (laughs) it's exactly the answer, by the way, that um, Bodhidharma, who was the first patriarch of Zen Buddhism, uh, gave to the emperor of China. Bodhidharma came from the east, from India, to spread Buddhism to China. And his reputation preceded him. And when he arrived at China, the emperor heard about this great sage and called him in for an audience and asked him, Who are you? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. And the emperor said, Well, get out of here. And then (coughs) his... Court sages came and said, oh, no, 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 he's the great sage. You know, he has a very profound answer. And, and finally convinced him, and he, years later, he relented and built Bodhidharma, some monasteries or something. I've forgotten how the story ends. Anyway, these stories always have a, a happy ending so, so that you won't be too discouraged. But it didn't make any difference to Bodhidharma.
0: <laughs>
1: End of knowledge in that sense. So in a certain sense, uh, awakening is, is uh, the total acceptance of our true condition, ignorance. And if we all admit to ourselves we truly are ignorant, we don't know what that is going on here. And our only problem is we're worried about it. We keep wanting to find out. And it can't be. We can't find out that way. Oh. And then... it's Because there's an absence of I, there's an absence of a story about I. Now, in one sense as I often say, then this whole cosmos is like a big drama to you. A wonderful, great movie, a symphony, a a performance of some sort. Very close analogy. I can't think of a better a closer analogy. That's the enjoyment of it all. But for an awakened person, at least in my case, there's no personal story in all this. And this is something, again, very different. I spent my whole life... Shaping and reshaping my personal story mm-hmm. or trying to find out what it was, trying to sometimes invent it, trying to sometimes discover it. Like, please tell me, what am I supposed to be doing? Uh, you know, always <laughs> worried about my personal story. And all the world then had to fit into my personal story one way or another. <gasps> There's my soulmate. Ah, ah. <laughs> End of Act 1, boy meets girl, what's going to happen next?
2: <laughs>
1: so, whatever was happening, this was a constant problem, a constant. And, you know, the story would never quite hold together. I could never really make it work. Maybe, I, maybe this is just because I spent a lot of my life creating dramas and stuff. But, you know, when you sit down as a, as a writer of plays or books, or, I guess, or anything like this, a story, you, you structure it. And if you do it well, you can, in a relative sense, there are better stories than others, you know. But if you're trying to do that with your own life all the time, it never works. And this uh, used to cause me no end of grief and uh, agony or confusion or suffering. Or, uh, and even when it was working, there would be a, a little bit of suspicion that, uh-oh,
2: <laughs> how long is this going to last? <laughs>
1: Uh, a little bit almost of a, a funny thing, a little bit of almost a hurry to die so that you can <laughs> die at a happy ending, you know what I mean? When you get it all together, <laughs> it'd be a nice tied-up story,
2: right?
1: <clears throat> I wrote in my book, uh, and that's the word that came to my mind at the time, that awakening freed me of all destinies, and really what that means, it freed me of all stories, of all sense that there was something I had to do to live up to. And one of the, uh, actually a line that occurred to me on the eve of my awakening was from a old, you um, uh, see, Alzheimer's setting in. <laughs> What's his name? Bob Dylan, an old Bob Dylan song. And the line is, it's a, a tagline of the verse or something. It's all right, Ma, I got nothing to live up to. You know how freeing that is? You know how freeing it is to not know anything and have nothing to live up to. It's total relief. It's put your burdens down, children, you know? I mean, oh, really? I don't have anything to live up to? Wow. <laughs> All my life, from whatever sources, culture, parents, teachers, schools, somewhere in there was always, again, related to the story, something I had to live up to, some destiny I had to fulfill. <sighs> To be free of all destinies. To be free of all stories. And finally, and you've heard me say this before, but this is perhaps the most crucial one. It's the letting go, the release, the absence of seeking. Specifically seeking for happiness. And this is related to stories. In every story, a good story, the hero or heroine is seeking something. And when you go to uh, drama one, that's the first thing you learn. The hero or heroine has to have some objective. They have to be seeking something. And maybe it's they're seeking to avoid a problem that comes to get them. Or maybe uh, the first act is they're, they're, oh, they're just seeking to maintain their, their old life and, uh, and they become they're the victim of events. But somewhere around the, in the play, they have to turn around and take matters into their own hands. Otherwise, it's, you don't have a story. So there's always this seeking, seeking some goal, seeking some form of happiness. And through my life, it would change. You know, when I was a little kid, happiness was getting the, uh, you know, the, the toy soldiers I'd asked for for Christmas. And other times in my life, it was, oh, the soulmate, you know, if only I would really find that perfect relationship, then I'd be happy. Uh, when I was in Vietnam, it was very clear. If only I could get out of here, i will be happy for the rest of my life, you know. And for a while, that seemed to be true, actually. But, you know, uh, when I was in show business, if only I could, you know, be rich and famous and respected and admired, then I'd be happy. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it changes. But there's always that seeking... Every morning of my life, I woke up, and this wasn't a conscious thought, but my day was planned around what I would do that day to become happy. From the littlest thing, like what clothes I put on, so I'd look attractive if I happened to be in that mode, uh, to what I'm going to have for breakfast, you know? Uh, This is going to make me happy. Should I have the uh, waffles uh, or should I have the the, uh, eggs, you know? (laughs) What's going to make me happy? And this is the crucial difference. That search comes to an end because in awakening, you realize happiness is already there. There is no reason or need or purpose or point to go look for it. And in fact, in the very motion of looking for it, in a certain sense, you are running away from it. In the very turning away from what is present right now, right here, from this display, exactly as it's rising, exactly as it's performing, that very turning away is causing the gap. And then the then you then there's a little gap of separation, it's a little bit of pain and irritation, and then you turn more away and more away, and it grows bigger and bigger, and the more you run away, the the, the stronger it becomes. So one of the whole tricks about a spiritual path is stop seeking happiness out there or in the next moment. Surrender that, give that up. Take my word for it. You can't get it that way. Uh, And one of the reasons a lot of people go on a spiritual path is because they get to the point where they realize I'm never going to get it this way. That's usually a crisis. It was in my life. You know, after I'd, Uh, you know, gotten my soulmate, gotten the job in Hollywood, gotten all this, I still wasn't happy. I thought, well, my God, I'm never going to get it. So it can be a big crisis, but that can be a great opportunity for you. Forget it then. You already are a loser. You've already failed. You've tried and tried and tried. Stop. Now just looking to see what is actually going on in the moment. Just turn your attention right now. And then you spent all this time <clears throat> running away, and now you start working your way back. And there's painful things to go through on the way back. But you start working your way back. And as Andrea, my, uh, my firstborn uh, <laughs> awakened student, said so eloquently, the very day <clears throat> she was, the first time she was explaining this to us at uh, the end of the retreat, she said, and then it's like subject and object come together in a bow. And she brought her hands together just like that in the bow. And that really says it all. So that's my talk for this morning. And if anybody wants to ask some questions or make some comments, I'll throw the floor open. Yes.
0: I have a question. In in, um, what you were just saying about, you know, basically being in the moment and that's where the happiness is. In any moment, Somebody coming, there's looking at it from the glasses half empty to the glasses half full. So, I guess, is it a bad thing to look at the positive in each moment as a way of, mm.
1: sort of
0: being in the world? Is that not real or not authentic, I guess? authentic.
1: Ultimately, it's to realize that positive or negative are relative terms, that, that, that this is not built into the fundamental reality. So it, the spiritual path is not about substituting, ultimately, the positive for the negative, because you're still in the realm of duality when you're doing that. However, it can be very helpful as a practice, as a remedial kind of practice to do that. If you're the kind of person who always looks on the negative side of things You're always seeing the glass is half empty. It can be a very good practice to counteract that conditioning by looking at the fact the glass is half full. And for most people, that's true. There are some people who are romantically optimistic, who are always looking at the glass is half full. They need to do the other practice. (laughs) No, I'm serious. They need to face reality a little bit, because that can be a form of escapism and entertainment, you see. So this is why I say just a kind of practice like that is relative to the context, to who is performing the practice and what their state is. So it can be very, very valuable. But don't fall into the trap that the the result, the end result is that eventually you're going to be able to see everything in a positive light. For, uh, for a mystic, on a, on, a, on a mystical path, the goal is not to see everything in a, either a negative or a positive light, but to see everything truly. Beyond negative and positive. Is that helpful?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Who? Oh, yes. When you
0: speak of uh, consciousness, what is it?
1: Nothing (laughs) A no thing Consciousness isn't a thing You tell me What is consciousness?
0: It seems to be awareness But again, like you said It's like there's nothing You
2: can't divide it up
1: There's nothing there I'm sorry Yeah well, awareness is a synonym, basically, for consciousness, isn't it? Sometimes I try to be technical and use them slightly differently, but basically it's a synonym for consciousness. But then if you go inquire about consciousness and go try to find it, for instance, where is it located? Or what size is it? A 32, or 34, a 36? <laughs> or what color is it? Well, see, I, you're shaking your head and you're right, but really the trick is here, because this can be a practice, is to really examine consciousness. Try to become conscious of consciousness. Turn awareness onto awareness. It's a very good practice. A lot of things to observe about consciousness in terms of what passes and what stays. you yeah. These are things to check out, by the way. Just don't take my word from it. Otherwise, if you just understand this intellectually, it really won't do you any good. If you make it a practice, it's very valuable. You watch all phenomena arise and pass away. Maybe they hang around for a while, but eventually they pass away. Whether they're thoughts, whether they're emotions, whether they're uh, sights, sounds, any sort of experiences. And you can experience them arising and passing away. And that's very valuable, too. You know, often they, they're gone and we, we, we sort of blanked out. We didn't notice things arising or passing away. We sort of lurch from, you know, time to time, moment to moment. But it's very, it's very helpful to try to become mindful of all this, how this stuff actually unfolds. And then a very interesting thing happens. If you keep observing, you'll never observe awareness arising or passing away. You'll never observe consciousness arising or passing away. And then maybe you begin to get a little hint of what the Upanishads meant when they said Brahman is the eternal among things that pass away. The consciousness of conscious beings. You see, you can investigate all these on yourself, uh, all these things on your own. And the reason is because they are all these teachings, any teaching worth its salt is speaking about your experience. And so you are your own laboratory. So if you want to test the teachings, just look to yourself and find out if they're true.
2: Yes? Um, one of the things that I know I do and a lot of people do is uh, to seek comfort, wanting to be comfortable. Uh, since your awakening, has comfort been a motivator for you?
1: Sometimes, yeah, all things being equal. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: sure you know this This, this old donkey is uh, likes warm rather than cold and so all things are equal the body would rather be in a nice warm bed than sleeping out on the cold desert but happiness does not depend on that you know it's sort of a I don't know if they're Built in biologically, genetically, culturally conditioned. Some people I notice like the cold rather than the heat. My wife, for instance.
0: <laughs> <clears throat> so these
1: things aren't absolute. I know that, you see. So you know, I come home and I'm comfortable, and she's, has like, it's roasting in here. I'd open some windows." Or I come home and. Freezing, I go around turning the heat up. I don't tell her always because
2: <laughs> 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 I get a little,
1: little bit of comfort going. Anyway, but I'm joking here, but again, you see, it's in the spirit of a game. And that's, that's how these little uh, preferences are transformed and transcended. They are experienced as part of the unfolding game. So, it's not that there aren't preferences, but it's not that happiness depends on fulfilling the preference or not. It's, the, it's not that there are certain times, certain things are more attractive in terms of comfort or whatever, but happiness doesn't depend on, the, on any particular outcome of the game. The happiness is the delight in the game itself. We think happiness is about that. You see, this is, this is deluded thinking. This is exactly my deluded thinking anyway, that if I could only get the creature comforts worked out right at one point in my life, I thought, you know, that's, that'll do it. And, and, of course, we never can because everything's impermanent. So even if you got it all worked out for, you know, at one minute you got your life precisely worked out so everything you wanted was in place, guaranteed in the next minute it's going to start unraveling. It's in the nature of things, you know, it, it can't work. So it's very interesting to look at these um, at these preferences again, and not get rid of the preferences. Not think that enlightenment is about I'm going to get rid of all these preferences. I don't care whether it's hot or cold, or whether I have uh, vanilla ice cream or tutti frutti. But it's very interesting to observe very closely when you do get what you want. That's the time to become very mindful see if it's really bringing you happiness.
2: Yeah. Oh, just a comment on my experience with people who were um, experiencing depression, that most often I found that people were trying to keep uh, keep from having a strong emotion, and it wasn't so helpful uh, you know, to do that. And what, I was working with them on a peer counseling relationship, so I would ex- encourage them to have that feeling strongly for a while. At some point, it, it may, there was, it was good to understand what you've been talking about to do with these, is to see what, that it's an activity. Um, um, but I could not recommend of them to do anything that, again, numbed out the, the experience of that emotion, um, which is all I can see that the Prozac and other drugs like that were doing. Uh, would be like to suppress the emotion further. So that's... Well, I
1: agree with you in terms of, uh, you know, there are various causes of depression. I don't think it's all just one. And I was speaking about one sort of natural rhythm that we misread in life. And there are other other reasons. And one certainly can be repressing emotion. And then I think very definitely uh, those techniques about bringing the emotions to the surface are very valuable. And that's why I said this turning away, turning away from the experience of now, you have to work your way back. And sometimes you have to work your way back through layers of repression or something that you're not even conscious are there. And if, if phenomena isn't arising in consciousness, you can't observe it, you can't deal with it, you can't do anything with it. So you have to find ways to release that. So I think that is very important. Again, they are remedial from a, from a mystical point of view: there were medial kinds of practices or techniques or methods they're not the ultimate end the end is to come right back to the origin of all this and the origin of all this is now we're all running away from now and just stop running away from now because again you can't do it (laughs) I mean realistically you just can't do it yes
0: um
2: Person
0: be awakened and be totally screwed up. Um,
1: To be screwed up, you have to be screwed up from somebody's point of view. There's no such thing as ultimately being screwed up. Yes. So. We have various choices here. Could somebody be totally awakened and be screwed up from your point of view? Yes, they certainly could. I'm sure they are. there are people. <laughs> could they be uh, fully awakened and be screwed up from um, one of their disciples' point of view? Uh, maybe not. Their disciple may know all the things you know about them, but the disciple thinks that they're wonderful. Uh, could they be uh, completely awakened and be screwed up from my point of view? Uh, f- they couldn't. They could only be screwed up in relation to what I would consider compassionate uh, means and skillful teachings. So I might think that somebody's teachings are screwed up. But you see, to be totally screwed up doesn't have any meaning aside from one perspective or another. And for a fully awakened being to be totally screwed up is... Uh, in that sense, a contradiction of terms. A fully awakened being isn't a being so there's no one there to be screwed up. Now, I will say this, the final authority of enlightenment is your own. You and only you can know that you are enlightened. You and only you can know that you're not there. I know that sounds paradoxical and doesn't make any sense. And and more importantly then, you and only you can know if seeking for happiness has come to an end. So if seeking is going on, by my definition, you're not enlightened. But how do I know? I mean, I don't know nothing about you or anybody else. You see what I mean? So people could be doing crazy things, not because they're seeking happiness. I don't know if it, they could be crazy wisdom teachers from a, a different tradition that... Uh, and they, their actions could be very compassionate. I, I mean, this this judging uh, another person, are they awakened or not? I know this goes on around here all the time. Ooh, do you think so-and-so is awake and uh, It's the, the only relevance it has to me is, uh, really, do I think that they are a skillful teacher... And that they're being awakened makes that then even more valuable. I wouldn't even send somebody to, uh, to, as or recommend somebody to an awakened person who I didn't think was a skillful teacher. So in a certain sense, I'm not as interested in whether they're awakened or not. I'm first interested in that they're a skillful teacher. Then if I think they're awakened, then then they really will be a powerful teacher, I think. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I do. But so
0: could... Maybe this is the same question. Could someone have a serious psychopathology in the OIT?
1: Well, like, you mean like be a paranoid schizophrenic?
0: Something like that, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, you know, I just don't know enough about uh, these pathologies. As far as I know, being a paranoid schizophrenic means that part of what it means is you think people are plotting against you. <clears throat> Well, if there's a you there for people to plot against, then by definition, you're not awakened. Or some people think that they are have grandiose delusions, that they're, you know, the second coming or they're Napoleon or something like that. Well, that's certainly not uh, awakening. There's someone there for them to be.
0: Well, you know, I just finished reading Wilbur's latest book. Uh-huh. He just His spectrum of consciousness, it's like... He harps and harps throughout the whole book that there are these different strands of kind of psycho spiritual development. Right. And so you can be like way I'm not sure if he actually said you could be fully awakened or if he even thinks that there is a fully awakened versus some other lesser awakened or partially or sometimes awakened but um so he seems to promulgate that there's like these strands of development, and there's all these emotional, psychological things, and you could be way over, way high on the Richter scale of spiritual, but your emotional, psychological life is still not together at all, and yeah. that can happen simultaneously. So well, that's again, kind of what I'm getting. Yeah,
1: but again, you have to. Look, this is the whole thing about thought. This is a scale of values. It doesn't exist out there in the universe someplace. It has to, what's the context of this? Do you see what I mean? From whose point of view are you uh, not well-balanced? From a therapist's point of view, he looks at that person and says, gee, that person doesn't look very well-balanced. Maybe you should come no, back to therapy. So
0: no, wait a minute. I think... Stop. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like from the from that person's point of view that they are... Suffering themselves and causing a lot of suffering to those around them, that would be like one kind of a test, I think. I mean, if, I think in oh. general, when we look at people, a lot of us would agree, yeah, this person is really screwed up in various ways. I mean, there's, there's a lot of agreement. In,
1: in this good. culture, but you go to another culture and you won't find that kind of agreement. You'll find people <clears throat> behaving very bizarrely and they are not thought to be screwed up. So it's, it's relative. I it's not that we shouldn't make those judgments, but we have to recognize they're relative, and you can't, you can't, you can't put that scale on on the absolute. I mean, they, they, they uh, it's mixing apples and pears. Now, let me just say this: uh, I would consider going to a therapist under certain circumstances. Let's say Jennifer and I weren't getting along, and. And it was something about our patterning, how we respond to each other and so forth. And uh, and she said, let's go to a marriage counselor, you know, and I would say, sure, let's do that. So and the marriage counselor might be able to point out ways that we are failing to communicate. Do you see what I mean? Assumptions that we're making about each other and so forth. And it might be quite helpful. But that's, that's going to a therapist not to become straightened out for a specific end, for, you know, for a goal. And that's going to a therapist to learn skills in communication. So I'm not objecting to, uh, to the idea that an enlightened person might not even go to a therapist or something and so forth. I'm objecting to this, how our minds pick something like this person screwed up. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything except in relation to somebody else's view of the situation, or their own view of the situation. They might think I'm screwed up. Part of the problem of delusion is people think I'm screwed up. You're not screwed up, but I mean, if you believe you're screwed up, then we have to start and work with that basis. Do you see what I'm talking about? So, when we're talking about awakening, all I'm saying is the the core, the essence of awakening is not a thing. It doesn't It can't be put into a spectrum of consciousness. It can't be captured on a scale. It can't be compared to other things like that. It's off the map. Maps are very useful, but you can't capture awakening and stick it on a map and and put it in a spectrum. I
0: guess I don't
1: really
0: get what you're saying. Well, (laughs) I'm not exactly (laughs) getting it.
1: You can't get this until you get it.
0: <laughs>
1: and, and, and don't worry about that. And I, I'm not saying this like as to try to be you know, super mysterious or something. I, in my path, I tried to imagine what's it like to be enlightened. I came up with all these things. You know, and it was absolutely nothing like any of that. It, was, it is unimaginable, literally, in the, in the meaning of that word. Imagination cannot conceive it. It is incomparable to anything because it is not a thing. So there's nothing to compare to. You can only compare things. You can't compare a th- a something to a nothing. It's indescribable. That does mean it's like, oh, it's indescribable. You should have had my mother's apple pie. It was indescribable. That just means it was so delicious that you can't think of the words great enough to describe it. It means it's literally, totally, in its nature, indescribable. So you can't even describe it to yourself. So you can't get it, until you get it. And the way you get it is to stop <laughs> getting it. Uh, there's nothing to get, to realize there is nothing to get. It's a, it's a nothing. and the Nothing can't be put on a map, on a scale. Let's bring the formal part of the meeting to a close. And until I see you again, peace to you all.